discipleship. Being a disciple of Christ means being a disciple of others who are disciples of Christ. Infants need help. They're helpless. Those who come to faith in Christ, particularly those who come with some religious background, maybe even some legitimate church background, many times come to the table. They come to Christianity thinking, well, I've got this experience. I've got this history, and, and therefore I'm kind of front-loaded in my life with the ability to hit the ground running, and yet without discipleship, that's disastrous. If someone comes to know Christ, it is incumbent upon the church to nurture that individual as an infant, as one who needs much care. And so it's not only irresponsible for a church not to emphasize the importance of personal discipleship. It's downright evil. Let me be clear about that. It's wicked for a church to dismiss the significance of discipleship as if it's a secondary issue. It's not secondary, it's the most primary issue in the Christian faith, that one would be led by others to love and follow and worship and obey Jesus Christ. And we get all this from Matthew 28, which we've looked at in depth a couple of times over the last few years, and last week we began our time in that text. We said to you, and it's printed there again in your bulletin, that desiring to obey our Savior... This morning, we will examine his word to understand what he and the apostles have taught us on the matter of discipleship so that we may effectively worship and honor him. There's no such thing as legitimately, effectively, and faithfully worshiping and honoring Jesus Christ without being involved in discipleship. It does not exist in the New Testament picture. And so we as a local church can look at our local church and say, praise God for the the large percentage, really the saturation of discipleship in our church. But we must never, ever think that we have achieved some plateau, some level of spiritual success that we could look at it and say, well, this is good. This is it. We've arrived. This is how it works. We want always to be saying, I personally, each of us, you, me, every one of us ought to be saying, I need spiritual growth. I need increasing humility. I need for people to tell me where and how I need growth. Without that, we will not only become stagnant, we'll become useless. And as we talked about from the scripture, from John 15 last week, the disciple bears much fruit. Much fruit has been born in his life through discipleship. He understands that. He experiences it. He enjoys it. He loves it. And what does he do? He's so full, he passes it on. He's so saturated with the love and the joy and the ministry of others that he can't help but want to be involved in the same way. So think of it. Naturally speaking, logically so, the person who resists discipleship has nothing to offer. And yet, the person who loves being discipled, the one who really longs for correction, he longs for a mentor in his life to come alongside him and say, let me walk with you. Let me assist you in this process. He will want to reduplicate that in his own life and in the lives of others. Last week, I finished by sharing with you that I had given my son Dawson a cordless power drill with which to change the world. 
What you didn't know is that I would be giving the same power drill or another one identical to it to my now 10-year-old son a couple days later. Their birthdays are two days apart. But one of the great joys in our involvement in our kids' lives is teaching them things. And I'm not here to tell you that giving them a power drill and teaching them how to use that is discipleship in and of itself, but it is a tool, no pun intended, for discipleship. And over the years, I've taught my boys how to hammer a nail, how to screw a screw, how to put a nut on a bolt, and how to drill a hole and saw a board. And so uh, I was instructed to stay out of the backyard. (laughs) Dad, we got this. Okay. And, uh, you know, every five minutes I'm sweating and saying to my wife, you know, what do you think about this? Should I go out there? I mean, they're live, right? And uh, much to uh, my great joy, they built a house. Yeah. Uh, You don't want to live in that house, but um, I suppose, uh, no kidding, if some rain were to come along, that would be a decent place to take shelter. Now, my wife asked them, now you realize it's only big enough for one person. Um, But they said, yeah, it's no problem because that's just the wood that we had and the screws and all that we had, and we did what we could. Uh, and I've inspected it, and although, again, I wouldn't want to live in it, um, it's actually quite sturdy. Uh, I, don't, I don't think I could knock it down without a whole lot of effort. Uh, I think it would take some work to, to bring it down. And as I'm looking at this, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, it could have been a lot worse. <laughs> could have been a whole lot worse. Could have been better. But they're, they're 10 and 11. So they took what I've taught them over the years a little bit at a time. I gave them these tools. We not only gave them the power drills, we took them to Home Depot and bought them each a a bit set so they could do what they needed to do. And honestly, I'm I'm kind of amazed. You look at that and you think, you know, um, it looks like a little kid's fort. Well, that's what it is. But had I not spent time with them teaching them how to use a drill over the years and how to use a hammer, how to use a screwdriver, they wouldn't have had a clue what to do. And that, I think, very well illustrates what discipleship is. It's not discipleship in and of itself, just to teach somebody how to use a drill, but it illustrates it. And in the same way, many of you can say that the skills that you enjoy, the things that you do so well, some of you, I I know you personally, I know you very well, and I can say, my word, the things that you do, you do so well with such exquisiteness and excellence that it needs to be passed on. Please don't go to the grave not teaching others to do these things that you do so well. But all of us. As Christians, as we do better and better in emulating the person of Jesus Christ, need to be willing to reproduce ourselves in that same way. Uh, Think of your spiritual growth as a skill. Say, well, I don't produce my spiritual growth. God does. That's right. Philippians 2 says that God does the work in you. It's his will to do that work in you. How does he do it? He does it through right? Dia, the Greek term dia, through what? You're working out your salvation. If you remember from 2 Peter 1 verses 5 through 11, you see the process by which a person can determine that he is of the elect. And it really is the parallel text to Paul's statement to work out your salvation. It's that passage where I won't give it all to you, but Peter says, make 
every effort, right? It's to endure with perseverance in these activities that are not just spiritual, but they are distinctly Christian qualities. And as you nurture those things and you grow to love those things, now think of it, if you grow to hate those things, if you hate discipleship, you hate brotherly love and kindness, you hate those things, you can say, looks like I can't confirm my calling in my election. But as you grow in those things and you grow committed to those things and you find yourself deeply involved in those things, that's Peter's point, that you're confirming your calling and your election, not simply by doing those things, but by coming to the place where they are, this is the word Peter uses, increasing that you find these things increasing in your life, not that you're getting to the end of your life saying, well, I did that. You know, I, I did that. It's somebody else's turn to pick it up and run with it. No. You're the best at being equipped. The older you get, the more you do it. And the more you do it and the older you get, the more you will want to do it, even as you grow older and weary and tired physically. You'll want to be involved in people's lives. Last week, we looked at the mandate, and we looked at the mandate from Jesus, and we looked at it from Paul, and we really, in essence, looked at it from John as well. But this mandate from Jesus is in Matthew 28. We are commanded, I told you last week, I'll tell you again, that the main verb here, really the only verb, the only command, the only imperative in Matthew 28, 19 to 20, is to make. It is to Disciple, that's the verb. You say, but in my translation, the rest of those verbs are translated as verbs. They're participles. They modify the main verb. In the Greek, that is how it is. And so each of those participles modifies the main verb to make disciples. Who's he talking to? He's primarily and initially speaking to whom? The disciples. So what are the disciples doing? They're reproducing themselves. The disciples are to make disciples. And as they do that, they then see the regeneration, so to speak, of the church, generation after generation, growing. That disciples make disciples. Years ago, I read a book called Disciples Are Made, Not Born. And practically speaking, that's true. Why do we say that? Because of Matthew 28. You are to make disciples. You're to reproduce yourself. That's the, the mandate. Now, who did Jesus disciple? I spoke to many of you this week about this question in your study guide. Who did Jesus disciple? Was it men? Was it women? Was it both? In a generic sense, in a broader sense, yes, Jesus exercised the matter of mafetes, mafeteo, to teach the multitudes, which included men and women. But who did he disciple in the way that Paul calls us to disciple in 2 Timothy 2 and Titus 2? Who did Jesus disciple in that way, in that pattern? He discipled the 12. But, but who did he disciple in an even more intense way? He said, I don't know, was there somebody else other than the 12? It was three of the 12. His time was really spent with three say, wow, why wouldn't Jesus spend that kind of time with a lot of people? Because he was one man. You say, wait a minute, Jesus was God, Jesus is God. Right, but in his humanity, in every way, he is likened unto us so that we will see the pattern for how we ought to live. He is our example. But you know what? 
He really discipled one, and that was John. He really poured his time mostly into one man. Jesus lived to be 33, and that discipleship proved to be very, very effective for three years. What are you doing, right? What am I doing? I think we ought to consider the possibility of pouring ourselves into a few for maybe three years or maybe six months to really make a concentrated mark on someone's life and say, I would encourage you that if you have determined to disciple someone that you would say, now listen, I'm willing to do this and I'll give you all I've got. But I'm going to ask you not to make a commitment to disciple someone else as a result. I'm going to ask you to make a commitment to endeavor to desire, to look for, to plan to disciple someone else as a result. You see what I'm saying? Don't get them in a neck hold and say, you have to disciple someone after I disciple you. But tell them that should be the goal. And maybe by the time you've discipled them for six months or nine months, they're not ready. But at least they remember that you've said, now remember the whole process is intended to lead you to the place where you're going to disciple someone else. I do that in counseling. When I have the privilege, when someone has indicated an interest in hearing from me what the Word of God teaches and how they ought to live and how we ought to live and how we ought to serve and help one another, typically I will say to that person, now listen, please be thinking about the whole time. Please, please, please be thinking about how you will extend this to others. Don't let this just be about the bettering of your life, but let it be about the equipping of your life. You would be equipped to tell others truth that the Lord has used in my life and hopefully will use in yours as well. Well, again, that pattern, when Jesus commands us unto discipleship, the pattern of how it ought to work is given to us in Titus 2 and 2 Timothy 2, and it's men with men, and it's women with women. That's how Jesus did it. He taught the multitudes, but Jesus wasn't ministering one-on-one with women. You say, what about Martha and Mary? That was dinner. That was spending time together, but it was not the intense calling them to account for their sins. Jesus had no problem speaking the truth in love to these men in such a way that would result in their greater ability to do it with others. And you see that reproduction in their lives throughout the New Testament. So we talked about the mandate, okay, the command, the command to make disciples. That was point one. Point two last week was the makeup. What does a disciple look like? What does he do? We said that he is one who obeys Jesus, leading others to obey Jesus. Matthew 28. Right? Make disciples, teaching them to obey my, Jesus said, every command. Immediately after he had just said, I bear all authority in heaven and on earth. So that's the basis upon which he gives us that command to make disciples. This Basic Christian truth, especially when it is revealed as being so very basic, offends the cultural Christian. The cultural Christian runs from this responsibility, this duty to the body, and he runs from the call to be subject to discipleship as well. This person, the makeup of this person is that he follows Jesus and he leads others to Jesus. There's a chain. He's somewhere in that chain of people who are walking toward Jesus, walking with Jesus. We ought to be able to look back on our rearview mirror of our lives and say, 
there's a trail of people who are following me to Jesus. And there's a trail of people behind each of them. We discipled them well. And if they've truly come to know Christ, then we will not only reproduce disciples in a generic sense, we'll reproduce disciples in a specific sense that they will want to disciple because they will have enjoyed discipleship. Well, another mark of the makeup, another element of the makeup of the disciple is that he loves the brethren. He really, really loves Christians. My dear friend Clayton Herb is really lovable. Everybody loves Clayton. And I said to a mutual friend one time, you know, the more I get to know Clayton, the more I love him, the more I enjoy him, the more I like him. And my friend said, yeah, but isn't that true about all Christians? The more you get to know them, the more you like them. Now, friends, I can confidently say that that's true today. Even in the midst of difficulty and working through painful situations, the more I get to know an individual who is in Christ, the more I am drawn to that person. It says that we're willing to do this together, and we love each other more than we love non-friction. This is the love that Jesus has called us to, but that was not me before I knew Christ. When I was the pretend Christian, when I was the whitewashed tomb, I liked people that were likable. You know, people that agreed with me. But in coming to know Christ, I'm inclined to obey Jesus' words in John 15, 12, where he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Did Jesus love you because you're lovable? Did you earn his love? Did you do something to flip the switch for his love? You love him because he first loved you. Jesus loves us when we're unlovable and unloving. He bridges the gap between us. He creates the reconciliation. We know, according to 1 John 3, that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. I mentioned also that the disciple not only loves God, he, he disciples others unto loving and following Jesus. He loves the brethren, but he also asks questions. You know, the, the person that comes to a Bible study or he, he comes to the church or he comes to some spiritual or, or Christian environment and he's just got information to give. It's all that it seems like he wants to do is explain things and communicate things, but he never has questions. That's not a disciple. When I was in seminary, I was scared to ask questions, but I did it anyway. But I certainly never had anything to offer to this, you know, Hebrew professor who's forgotten a whole lot more than I will ever know because he's so amazingly smart and wise and godly and shepherding. But it's, it's troublesome when a man calls himself a Christian and he's got no questions. That's not a disciple. The makeup of a Christian disciple is much like that Ethiopian eunuch who recognizes that Philip has some information that can be helpful to him. How should I understand this, he says to Philip. And Philip explains it to him, and then they're off and running with Philip explaining the person of Jesus. Well, the disciple nurtures a love for discipleship in his family. He's not just about his family. In fact, his, I mentioned this last week, his his family is really the groundwork in which his discipleship proves whether or not it's valid. 
if he's leading his children into discipleship relationships, let, let it be known loud and clear that I need you, men. I need you, not just for my own sanctification, because I've got five little boys who need your input. I love the fact that every now and then, Craig Danielson knocks on my door and says, hey, is Quaid around? I'm doing some work over in Suite 5, and I need my helper. And I am positive that Craig is not just trying to teach Quaid how to use a table saw. He's trying to help Quaid see what it means to love Christ via the vehicle of Craig's great skill as a finished carpenter. That's just one example among many. Many of you have effectively already poured into my boys. And now, as difficult as it is for me to get it through my lips, I have a little girl that I need you, ladies, to pour your life into. He's devoted to nurturing a love for discipleship in his family. He does not think so highly of himself that he says, I disciple my family. That's not discipleship, if that's all that's going on. But the man who says, I disciple my family, and I disciple them unto a love for the church, and I disciple them unto a love for discipleship, knowing that I have weaknesses and I have shortcomings. And think of it. Is it not possible that someone else's giftedness is going to be a whole lot more like your child's than yours? Shouldn't we want others to have godly influence on us? But think of it. The man who's pouring into others is developing a repository of disciples for his own children over the years. The makeup of a disciple is such that his devotion to the body with a proper devotion to his family teaches his family to place a high value on God's family. Well, third, point number three. Point number three, as we've looked at the mandate from Jesus and the apostles, we've looked at the makeup of a disciple in the New Testament. Now we want to look at the model. What do I mean by the model? Well, I sort of mean two things. I mean Jesus as the model, obviously, but I also am going to point to Jesus' discipleship of others. Okay, So not just the uh, model, capital M, being Jesus, but the model of how Jesus discipled. In John 15, 13, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If, remember guys in that hermeneutic study a few weeks ago, we talked about conditional statements, if then. Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you Jesus commanded you to make disciples. I'll let you do the math on whether or not you're a friend of Jesus. Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is the model. Jesus, the model, called for a following. If you'll follow Jesus, you'll follow him. It's really what he's saying. It's real following. Some people like to use this phrase, Christ follower. That's become, in certain circles, kind of the, the term, whereas they've done away with the term Christian. Because they say, well, everybody says they're a Christian, but are you a Christ follower? Well, there's good in that idea. The good that's in it is that if we're saying that a person who says he follows Christ must actually follow Christ, 
then we're calling people to a practical application of biblical truth. How do you know whether or not you're a follower of Christ? You follow Christ. That's how you could frame that if you want. So if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Many think this idea of a cross is, you know, a a really, really difficult boss. You know, or a bad relationship with your sister or your mother-in-law or something like that. No, it's a willingness to die. This is what Jesus called his disciples to be willing to do. To be willing to die in service of Christ and the church. How do we know that? Well... First of all, because the picture of the cross is an emblem of death. The cross itself is symbolic of death. The term cross throughout the scripture points to the cross of Christ, which was the tool of his death. But secondarily, and very importantly next, we see Jesus saying here, for whoever would save his life will lose it. See that? The person who will take up his cross and follow Jesus is the one who is a disciple. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So there's this pouring out of one's life on a regular basis, a willingness to die physically, but more important than that, a willingness to live for others, that your life would be about serving others, that you would live your life in a way that you're losing it. You're losing your life because you're not living for you. You're giving it up in service to others. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? This goes hand in hand with the get-rich-quick schemes that Jesus would not have us be involved in. The one who's doing what he's doing in an effort to simply fortify his pocketbook, his bank account, Jesus would address as the person who has lost his soul. That's what his life is about, making more money. He says, or what shall a man give in return for his soul. What would he give up? What would you give up? What would you and I give up? We're to give up our lives. If we give up our lives, we get our lives. And how is that pictured? How is that manifest? It's manifest in service to others. That You become known for, not simply known for, but you are known for it because it's true about you. You're spending yourself on other people. Christ is that model. Christ was not about serving Christ. The Son of Man came not to be served, Mark 10 says, but to serve. He came to be a slave. And and we see this in Paul. I remember years ago when I was at Grace Church and John MacArthur was going through 2 Corinthians and he made this statement about Paul the Apostle. He said, there was nothing in Paul about Paul. Oh, for that man to be true of us. That people could say about us that we're not defensive, that we don't intend to exalt self, that we're not about proclaiming our greatness, tooting our own horn, so to speak. But that no matter what the circumstance, that it would be true of us, that there would be nothing in us about us, but that we would be about Jesus. Christ is the model disciple, and his model is one of reproduction by imitation. And so in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 14, Paul says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed. 
And you might think that Paul is writing these things to the Corinthians to make them ashamed because certainly they have engaged in shameful activity and Paul draws attention to that shameful activity, which a shepherd does. But he here is saying, that's it's not what I'm intending to do. I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on you. I'm not trying to make you ashamed. You should be ashamed, but I'm not trying to do that. He says, what I'm trying to do is to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. And Paul here uses the matter of spiritual fatherhood not to require that someone call him father. Or that they call him pastor or call him brother. He says, I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What is he talking about? He's talking about the initial work of God in that person's life that Paul was used to accomplish. There was spiritual birth, and in that spiritual birth, there was spiritual nurturing. And so Paul, in a sense, fathered those, and he is saying this to the Corinthians. And so he says about that then, I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's the idea. Be imitators of me. Brothers, sisters, beloved, there must be someone in your life that you're imitating, at least early on, at least initially. And I think the person who gets to the place, you know, says, I don't need that. He never did that. He never really had what many today would call a mentor. He never really had a spiritual father. As I look back on my life, I can name several men who, and I don't know the extent to which they were intending, you know, to be spiritual fathers in my life, but I know that I still to this day lean heavily on how they operated. I remember their humility. I remember their love for the scripture. I remember their love for service. I remember their love for people. I remember their love for God's word. And it had indelible impact on my life. And the result, it's not just that, but the result of that is I say, you know, I can do that too. I can pour into men. There will be men who will say, yeah, please pour into me. Paul here, speaking of, of spiritual fatherhood, goes on to say, after urging the Corinthians to be imitators of him, he says, that is why I sent you Timothy. What do you mean? Why would you send us Timothy? Because Timothy imitates me. As you imitate Timothy, you're going to be imitating Paul, ultimately imitating Jesus. My beloved and faithful child, he says, of Timothy, in the Lord, right? He was Timothy's spiritual father. To remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. But in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, Be imitators of me because I'm great. <laughs> no, as I imitate Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Uh, just prior to that, 1 Corinthians 10.31 he says, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And there's more to that. But the idea of glorifying God, friends, primarily comes in who you follow. Who's discipling you? Philippians 3, verse 15, Paul says, let those of us who are mature think this way. You hear that? Let those of us who are what? Are mature. There's been a perfecting process. There's been a process of maturation that the church 
would attest to and affirm. He says, let those of us, because some are not, right? All of us were not mature at one time. But let those of us who are mature think this way. I love this. I love that command there. My grandfather had a little uh, placard on his desk, and it had one word on it, and it was the word think. I, I remember that, and I think, I, I hope I'm doing what he wanted me to do when I saw that. Think. Be a thinker. And that's what Paul is saying here. Be a thinker. Let those of us who are mature think this way. What way? And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Well, everything he has said up to that point in Philippians 1 through 3. Let your life be devoted to the gospel. And then he says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, let me, let me just say here, there, there are those who, in a sense, inadvertently, accidentally do us a favor by being so faithless to Christ in their superficial devotion to religious activity that they help us understand what it doesn't look like. And it's very unappealing, and it's very cumbersome, and it's very painful, and it's very legalistic, and it's very difficult. And there's no joy in it. And that's the anti-example. They make it easier for us to, to see the person who's truly devoted to Christ. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Be the person who follows the example, who follows the example. You can't get around this. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Who's the worst enemy of the cross of Christ? It's the false disciple. It's the person that leads you to the brink of godliness and drops you like a hot rock. It's the person that shows you an appearance of godliness, but what? As Paul says there in that text, he has an appearance of godliness and he's got what? No what? Power. He's got no power. He's got no victory over his sin, but wow, does he ever think he's got you convinced that he does. He's got no power, but he's got an appearance of godliness. And Paul says, those are enemies of Christ. Don't follow them. In fact, the point here is that because those people exist, because of enemies of Christ who exist, because false Christs exist, imitate those who imitated us. Those people exist. Praise God for those people who walk faithfully. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 6. Paul says, and you became imitators. So to the Corinthians, he's saying, do it. To the Thessalonians, he's saying, praise God, you're doing it. You know, that beautiful phrase that he says to the Thessalonians a couple times, excel still more. You know, don't get lazy. And think that you've done what you need to do. Excel still more. Be passionate. He says in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 6, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. When will Christians start dropping out of the church? When affliction arises. In particular, when that affliction reveals a lack of holiness, and specifically a lack of devotion to the body. Of course they would leave at that point, because... Why would they stay? 
So he says to the Thessalonians in chapter 2, verse 13, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Hebrews 6, verse 11, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This pastor calls Christians to imitate Christians. Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders. Remember your leaders. Those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And, and just know that leaders are going to be falsely accused. But at the same time, leaders are going to be rightly accused. What's the difference? This is a huge matter of the difference between a legitimate leader and a false leader. A legitimate leader says, let's discuss the accusation. The false leader says, I don't have time for your accusations. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life. What outcome? The outcome is a, is a godly outcome. The outcome is a life of imitation. It reflects the person of Christ. And it draws others to look more like Christ. In 3 John, verse 9, John says, I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. You see that? The leader ultimately needs to be willing to be courageous and point out when false accusations are made. But he says, so if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that. He refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. So here's this guy who's showing himself to be a leader in the church, which he's really not, and he's finding those who want to follow the true leadership, and he's misdirecting them away from the church. He, he runs them off from the church. He's creating factions. Verse 11, 3 John, Beloved, do not imitate evil. Don't imitate that person. Know that those people exist. Know that there are people who are currently planting seeds of division, like casting a shadow of doubt on the leadership, and they are extremely persuasive. John says, don't imitate evil, imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. Demetrius is an example. There are examples in the current church, in the modern church. There are examples of men and women who are emulable. They're worthy of emulation. They're worthy to imitate based on the outcome of their lives. He says, then we also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. So there is a model. Jesus is the 
model, but in that model, his model of discipleship is such that Paul became a person who, by imitating Jesus, could confidently and humbly call others to imitate him. And then you see multiple examples throughout the New Testament of men and women who've become worthy of emulation. We are to follow that model. Number four, point number four, the methods. So the methods, we've looked at the mandate of discipleship, the makeup of a disciple, the model of discipleship, and now we want to look at the methods. Point number four, how to disciple begins with how to be discipled. What are the methods in Scripture? What does Scripture mandate? What is the method? I remember when I was first in seminary, and, and, and much of my seminary experience was so enjoyable because it was couched in the local church where I was taught well. And not just taught well uh, from the pulpit, but taught well from men who were true disciplers. And that being couched in such discipleship gave me the privilege to observe how it was done. And I can remember the question coming up in a discipleship venue. So what exactly is discipleship? And there are some basic tenets. But the fact is there are multiple methods. And we do things a certain way around here. Let me just explain why momentarily. Why do we do Ironman and WOW and 412 and 116 the way we do? Because we do everything the way we do. And the reason we do everything the way we do is because we believe that God provides an awareness of needs and he provides saints to fulfill those needs. That's the natural reality of the organic expression of the church of Jesus Christ, that where there are needs, God provides people with particular giftedness to fulfill those needs. So early on, when we began to develop Ironman, we did what I had been doing in my previous experience. We kind of transplanted that into the anchor. I was meeting with a number of men on Monday mornings, really probably at that point, every man in our church, six o'clock Monday mornings. And we realized there were a couple of guys who couldn't come on Monday mornings. So we said, let's start one on Tuesday afternoon. We did, and it didn't seem like that was the best timing. So we said, let's move it to Tuesday night. Somebody said, but Tuesday afternoon was great for me. So now we got three. And then pretty soon we said, well, we should add one on Saturday because we had started WOW on Wednesdays and Saturdays and the men can come together and now we're doing it on Wednesday nights and it's just kind of a family thing and it works really well. So the methods, what do we do? What do we look to? What's our example? How do we know what the methods should be? How about look to Jesus? Right? Jesus is the model. So we look to him and what he did. What did he do? He loved and he lived with men. He loved them and he lived with them. He, he lived life with them. He engaged with them. See, we provided a structure for discipleship in our, in our church, a foundation. But that's what I like to think of as the, the broad spread net of discipleship. Is that what discipleship looked like with Jesus? In a sense, yes, because as he taught the 12, it was a public matter of communicating truth. And it certainly had massive impact on those men. And others looked on. And as he taught in parables, who was he teaching to? He was teaching to them, knowing that the unbeliever couldn't understand the parable. This is a remaining truth today about the word of God. The unbeliever does not understand the word of God, but in particular, the parables. And so he would take them aside and explain the the meaning of the parable. But in particular, like I mentioned earlier, he spent time specifically with those specific men in a more intimate environment, and sometimes just one-on-one. -on -one. That's the method. 
That's the basic element or essence of the method. You might say, though, you know, I'd love to be involved in discipling someone, but I, I don't know where to begin. You know, how do I do this? What's the method? You know, it's possible you first need some discipleship so you know what to do. And to tell you the truth, much of my discipleship practices, some percentage come from how men discipled me, but a lot of it doesn't. A lot of it comes from what other men in my life whom I have discipled have said they need. So the method might be some practice that the Spirit of God moves on in your heart that you would jump in and do. And it just seems to make sense for both parties involved. But I would suggest that you decide to meet for three to six months with someone, not indefinitely. I don't know that that's best. It's not wrong if you do that, but I would require of that person that he or she will endeavor to do the same with someone else as soon as possible. At the point where you feel like you can sort of launch that person into some oversight or some input in someone else's life, then encourage it. We're such a young church. We're, we're only four and a half years old, but there's so many of you, as I think of what the Lord has done in your lives, I remember days where, you know, you felt utterly incompetent and unable to really have any impact on anybody's life. And, and then the day came where, you know, someone was looking for discipleship. And I, and I said, why don't you go to, that, why don't you go to that person? And they come to you and you said, really? Yeah, it seems to me, but I'm not the authority on that. It's not me to determine that. It's not up to me to make that decision. You do that. When you feel like you're excited and ready to be involved in someone's life the way someone has been involved in yours, exercise a method that starts with a commitment to spend time and ask that person to be ready to pour into someone else once you've effectively poured into them. If someone wants to follow you, your goal should be to make that person winsome and valuable as a discipler. That's really what you ought to be endeavoring to do. The one who best follows Jesus is the one who best leads people to Jesus. So I didn't give you much on method, did I? Because the Bible doesn't dictate the exact method other than what we see in Jesus. We're commanded to make disciples. We see how Jesus did it. We ought to be pouring our lives into people. And I'd recommend that you start with a few or one. Yeah, start with one. Well, the material. I'm going to give you a list of things, but please know that a big part of what we do in Ironman and WOW and 412 and 116 is providing for you access to legitimately helpful discipleship materials. What the ladies are going through right now is excellent discipleship material. And so Beth and Diane really are discipling all the women in our church in one sense. In another sense, they are specifically discipling women that they meet with on a regular basis privately. But many of you other women are doing the exact same thing. And maybe you would say, you know what? I love that material. Behold your God. I love that material. I think I'm going to take somebody through that. Or, you know, you sit down with that person and they say, you know what? I, I really... I really want to understand the person of Jesus better. So you take them to the book of Mark. Well, here's some suggestions. Thoughts for Young Men by J.C. Ryle. Love that book. It's a little book. But he will certainly challenge you. He will make you think through what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. It's painful, but very helpful. It's a small book. Humility by C.J. Mahaney. I've been through that book. I can't tell you how many times. And every time I think this is so helpful. And C.J. Mahaney does a tremendous job of explaining what real humility looks like. Found God's Will by John MacArthur, a very small book that I think is 
extremely helpful for understanding what God's will is and avoiding the pitfall of looking for God's will specifically in your life and just looking at what it is in the scripture. Easy to read, costs you $5. Journey into God's word, the book that we're going through in Ironman now. The bigger book from which that is uh, an abridged version is Grasping God's Word. Rick is using that in his discipleship group because it provides more exercises for learning how to study God's Word. A thicker book, Holiness by J.C. Ryle. It truly is a classic must-read, I believe, for every Christian. R.C. Sproul, Essential Truths of the Christian Faith. It's a book on doctrine. It's a systematic doctrine, and it's easy to read. Every doctrine in the Bible is dealt with in two or three pages. Extremely helpful. Uh, Ladies, The Excellent Wife by Martha Peace. I know a number of you are are going through that currently. It's a great book. Uh, Finally Free by Heath Lambert. This is a book on overcoming sexual addictions, the ability to overcome sin. He really deals with sanctification and how how it works. It's called Finally Free by Heath Lambert. Study a book of the Bible. Write your own Bible study. You know these Bible studies that Ken and I write each week? Ken does more of it now than I do. It's not difficult. We're simply in the observation section asking questions that can only be answered by the English text of the Scripture. Interpretation. Um, you know, if you, if you need some help, if you need some commentaries, things like that, come to me. Come to your family group shepherd. I'll help you get those books so you can disciple someone. How about this? Here's a real simple approach to discipleship. Get together with someone once a week and read the Bible together. How about that? Let's just read through the book of John, chapter a week. Or how about memorizing scripture together? I know that Sherry and Kendall have done that many, many times with other women. Just Let's get together once a week and we'll just memorize the passage of scripture that goes up on the screen every week. And I know they're doing other passages as well. How about praying together? By spending time with them praying. Great idea, isn't it? How about this? Here's some really practical things. Take a kid to work. Take a a young man or a young woman in our church who has no father, no mother. Take them to work with you one day if you can. Let them spend time with you observing what you do. Minister to widows and orphans in a practical way. How about this? You know, we have a group of men now who have become a very systematized team of workmen around our church building. They're constant needs. Somebody said to me not too long ago, man, there's nothing to do around here. Everything's fixed. Well, that's not entirely true, um, but it's largely true because there are faithful men who serve. They're looking for the paint chips and, you know, the things that need to be replaced and, and, and all that. And they're fixing those things all the time. And some of these guys are amazingly skilled. Young men, there's so many men in our church that you could learn so much from. I know that Richard and Dominic replaced the engine in Dominic's car recently. And I know that was a great experience for both of them. There are things that you can do that other people can't do, and those things are great vehicles by which to teach someone how to follow Christ. Take them to coffee. If they have not yet become a coffee drinker, question their salvation. (laughs) And then, uh, you know, teach them how to find good coffee. Teach them to budget. Oh, the tragedy that so many of our lives have experienced because we didn't know how to budget. Well, lastly, point number six, and I'm going to save it for next time, but it's the mindset. It's the mindset. I think the power of discipleship is in the right 
attitude. You can attempt to do all these things, and if you have the wrong mindset, the wrong attitude, then it will get sour fast. You'll lose wind. You'll lose steam at a rapid pace. But I do want to uh, finish by reading from uh, Howard and William Hendricks' book, As Iron Sharpens Iron. Howard Hendricks, the beloved teacher at Dallas Seminary for many years, wrote this with his son. And, And these are the words of Howard Hendricks here. He says, in my own life, I can recall several of these profoundly influential figures who were strategically used by God to change the course of my life. The first was a man named Walt. Had it not been for Walt, I seriously doubt whether I would have ever become a follower of Jesus Christ. I came from a broken home. My parents were separated before I was born, and neither one paid much attention to my spiritual condition. To put it bluntly, I could have lived, died, and gone to hell without anyone even bothering to care. But Walt cared. He was part of a tiny church in my neighborhood that developed a passion to affect its community for Christ. Walt's passion was to reach nine- and ten-year-old boys like me with the gospel. I'll never forget the Saturday morning I met him. I was sprawled out on a Philadelphia sidewalk playing marbles. Suddenly, someone was standing beside me. I looked up to see this gangly guy towering over me, all six feet, four inches of him. My mouth sort of dropped open. Hey, son, how would you like to go to Sunday school, he asked. That was an unfortunate question. To my mind, anything that had the word school in it had to be bad news. So I shook my head no. But Walt was just getting started. How'd you like to play marbles, he asked, squatting down. Now he was talking my language. Sure, I replied, and quickly set up the game. As the best marble player on the block, I felt supremely confident that I could whip this challenger fairly easily. Would you believe he beat me in every single game? In fact, he captured every marble I had. In the process, he captured my heart. I may have lost a game and a bit of pride that day, but I gained something infinitely more important, the friendship of a man who cared, a big man, an older man, a man who literally came down to my level by kneeling to play a game of marbles. From then on, wherever Walt was, that's where I wanted to be. Walt built into my life over the next several years in a way that marked me forever. He used to take me and other boys in his Sunday school class hiking. I'll never forget those times. He had a bad heart, and I'm sure we didn't do it any good, running him all all over the woods the way he did. But he seemed not to mind because he cared. In fact, he was probably the first person to show me unconditional love. He was a model of faithfulness. I can't remember a time that he ever showed up to his Sunday school class unprepared. Not that he was the most scintillating teacher in the world. In fact, he had almost no training for that. Vocationally, he worked in the tool and dye trade, but he was for real, and he was also creative. He found ways to involve us boys in the learning process, an approach that made a lasting contribution to my own style of teaching. Overall, Walt was the picture of Christ for me. And not only for me, but for 13 other boys in my neighborhood, nine of whom also came from broken homes. Remarkably, 11 of us went on to pursue careers as vocational Christian workers, which is ironic given that Walt himself completed school only through the sixth grade. It just goes to show that a man doesn't need a PhD for God to use him to shape another man.
quite a testimony. Some of you know the name Howard Hendricks. I think in all of my life in the Christian experience, if you were to ask most people I know, who is the guy known as the teacher in the Christian faith in our era? It's Howard Hendricks. He's written a number of books on how to teach and how to teach well. And it typically comes down for him, it typically comes down to being a person whose life is worthy of imitation and involving yourself in people's lives. The person who teaches but doesn't involve himself in people's lives, he may have some impact. Let's not, let's not dismiss the significance of being an effective teacher in and of itself. But the teacher, Jesus, poured himself into people's lives. Mathetes, the teacher, the discipler, was in fact a person whose life resulted in others following him, who did what? Led others to follow them that they would follow Jesus. Father, thank you for Jesus and for his life being worthy of emulation, that he, though he was God, came to us in the form of man. His life being a submissive sacrifice, that being one who obeyed you, who trusted you, who allowed you to be the ultimate judge of all things. He didn't return insult for insult or revile for revile, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously. Lord, we see in your word that you've called us to be a people who are making disciples. Lord, give us great joy in doing that. And help us to ask the question, not how successful have I been as a discipler, but whether or not you've used me at all. Father, I trust for those in our church who've been used at all, even in the seemingly most minuscule way, that that would be a matter of rejoicing, that they would not feel insignificant, but that they would feel excited and overjoyed that you would use them, Lord, that you would use us. We would rejoice over that. And we ask that ultimately disciples would be made that Christ's authority and his goodness would be known throughout the world. It is in his name we pray. Amen.